Well, good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Good evening and a very, very warm welcome to each and every one of you here to St. Paul's and to this forum event. My name is Mark, Mark Oakley, and I'll introduce our speakers to you in just a moment. But for those of you who've not been to one of our events here before, let me just briefly explain how it works. In a moment, uh, Sarah Miles and Nadia Boltzweber will speak about their unique journeys to faith, as well as the ways that their cities and the people who live in them have shaped their inspiriting urban ministries. Nadia and Sarah will speak for about 15 minutes each, and then we will have plenty of time for your questions to them. If you have a question, please write it on the back of your leaflet and hold it up to be collected. We'll then collect the questions until about 20 to 8. Please keep them brief, keep them legible, and then we'll try and get a broad conversation from them up here. We're also taking questions via Twitter this evening using the hashtag BeautifulFaith. If you'd like to send us your question through your mobile phone, just type in your question and include hash BeautifulFaith and we will find it. We'll end promptly, promptly at 8 o'clock, and both speakers' books will then be for sale up here under the dome, and both authors have kindly agreed to sign copies over here. And so now it gives me great pleasure to introduce our speakers. Sarah Miles is the Director of Ministry at St. Gregory of Nyssa Episcopal Church in San Francisco the founder of The Food Pantry, and the best-selling author of Take This Bread, Jesus Freak, and The City of God. Before her conversion to Christianity and her subsequent ministry, Sarah was a war reporter. She was fed by guerrillas in the jungles of the Philippines, the poor of El Salvador, and impoverished South African grandmothers. Now, she feeds 400 hungry families in her church every week. She speaks and preaches and leads workshops around the United States and her writings have appeared in the New York Times Magazine, The New Yorker and on National Public Radio. Her theology is rooted in what she calls the gritty reality of the incarnation, that God lives in bodies. A celebration of life that runs throughout all of her wonderful books and which it will be great to hear about more this evening. Nadia Boltzweber is the founding pastor of the House of All Saints and All Sinners in Denver, Colorado. She is a former stand-up comic, a leading voice in the emerging church movement in America, and a New York Times best-selling author. She blogs under the fantastic name of Sarcastic Lutheran. The Washington Post has praised Nadia for her liberal, foul-mouthed articulation of Christianity, which speaks to fed-up believers. Her commitment to inclusiveness and social justice has led to her unique kind of tattoo evangelism. She's the author of the fantastic and often sarcastic, cranky, beautiful faith, her story of real faith in complex life, the mess and grit and the beauty too. Today, of course, is the feast day of St. Augustine. His famous book, The Confessions, tells the story of his own cranky, reluctant conversion 
and the beauty he found in faith in God, forever ancient, forever fresh. It begins the wonderful tradition of confessional theology, that theology of experience that finds God in the fearless telling of our own stories and those of others. And it's a real pleasure to welcome two who, like Augustine, have been changed by a graceful interruption and have changed us by their telling about it. You know, just occasionally, God, in the dark night of the church, creates a few fireflies whose unpredictable, darting light and energy is a really wonderful thing to find yourself with as they dispel illusions, but without making you disillusioned. Indeed, they make hope a believable word. They reassure us that life isn't really for beginners, but that's what most of us are at the end of the day. Well, two such fireflies have made their way into St. Paul's tonight, and I, for one, am very excited they have. Would you please welcome both our speakers, Sarah and Nadia. Good evening. I bring you greetings in Christ Jesus from your brothers and sisters in San Francisco. Thank you, Mark, and thanks to all who made this possible. It's it is beautiful faith to be here and to be in this beautiful space with all of you. I want to talk a little bit about my own story and uh, how I wound up here. And then I hope that we'll continue to have a conversation together about a lot of the themes that, um, that Mark mentioned as well. My book, uh, City of God, which I stole very shamelessly from St. Augustine, not an original title. It takes place on one particular street corner in my own particular neighborhood on one particular day, Ash Wednesday. But actually, the experiences that I wrote about have made me sort of obsessed with the way that we understand worship and blessing and holiness and service and church buildings and devotion and, well, the incarnation, the embodied gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ who lives and breathes and suffers and dies on that street corner and on every corner of the world, who is at the center of our faith as an incarnate being. But it feels risky sometimes to mix up the embarrassing facts of our mortal bodies, blood, sex, disease, dirt, death, with faith, which we'd prefer to imagine as something purely spiritual, elevated, and clean. Bodies are not stable. They're alive and unpredictable and impure. It feels safer sometimes to worship in a temple of stone where the fire will seem smaller and the overing shadowing cloud less dark and the holy ground more neatly fenced in so that God will stay safely indoors 
not be all up in my face. But a spiritual life is a physical life. A spiritual life is only a physical life. And blessed are those who hunger. I came very late to Christianity. I was knocked upside down by a midlife conversion that was centered around a literal chunk of bread handed to me by a stranger one morning at St. Gregory of Nyssa Episcopal Church. Jesus welcomes everyone to his table, she said, and so we invite everyone to, to take the bread and wine which are Christ's body and blood. So trying to be polite, I took the bread. And I understood two things at the same time. I was tasting real bread made of real flour and water and salt. It was sort of tasty, wholemeal, hand-baked bread. And I was drinking real wine, sort of horrible wine, sweet, sticky, nasty. And I knew that these were real things in my mouth and I also knew that God, who I did not believe in, was alive and was in my mouth. That was my first communion, and it totally short-circuited me. I, of course, ran out immediately because I was afraid a Christian might try to talk to me. I hadn't been a believer. I wasn't a believer. I wasn't a seeker. I didn't know any Christians, though I knew I didn't like them. And I didn't understand anything about the tradition. I never decided what to believe as an intellectual proposition. I was simply found by this force that was blowing uncontrollably through creation, through hands and mouth and flesh and blood, connecting me to everybody else through that bread. It was, as I later learned, Jesus' disciples complained to him, intolerable. But I kept coming back because I was hungry and I wanted more. And because in a place that invites strangers into full participation in the liturgy, there's just no way to do this without doing it, without throwing my whole body, my whole soul into the work. At St. Gregory's, the priest and whoever else is helping serve communion that day, it could be a seven-year-old, it could be an older lady, gather around the table in the middle of the room to break bread and pour wine before carrying it out to feed the crowd. Our rector, Paul Fromberg, likes to explain that the surest sign of Jesus' real presence in the Eucharist is when there's somebody completely inappropriate at the altar. That would be me. One day as a relative newcomer, I was the one asked to help break communion bread and make the invitation. Jesus welcomes everyone to his table, so we offer the bread and wine to everyone without exception. And then it happened again. I handed that piece of bread, that body of Christ, to you, to the body of Christ, and it cracked everything open again. That experience led me to another, to baptism. Scared, thrilled, filled, held. I promised 
to keep sharing in the breaking of bread, and I stood there trembling as the water poured over my head. And because I was new enough to the faith to think that those words I said, that I was supposed to mean them, I also, the weekend I was baptized, opened a food pantry at the church, a sort of free farmer's market full of tables of potatoes and lettuce and bread set right in the middle of the sanctuary around the altar. It wasn't that I was interested in doing good deeds or in running a social service program. I just wanted more bread, more living water, more Jesus, more life. The food pantry was modeled explicitly on our worship. So our pantry just went ahead and gave free groceries to anybody who showed up. Thieves, cripples, whores, foreigners, little children, widows, people possessed by demons. And we asked unqualified people to help out, inappropriate people to participate fully. And from all over the city, poor people started to come to St. Gregory's every Friday. A hundred, two hundred, four hundred and fifty, eight hundred. And just like me, some of them stayed. They changed. They began to feed each other around the altar and then take responsibility for running things and then start more pantries in other places. I watched the body of Christ take form in the bodies of the most inappropriate people, all of whom, like me, had just come to get food and wound up feeding others. And all of this happened without respect for the boundaries we like to set up between service and worship, body and soul. The people at the pantry eat real food, which is of course holy food, and the people at the altar eat holy food, which is of course real. Jesus actually means it when he says, my flesh is real food. So sharing groceries around that altar, just like sharing communion bread, allowed me to believe, and more importantly to act, as if that stuff we do on Sundays means something. As if it's a guide to our whole lives in church and outside. For example, the food pantry was based on what I experienced in the Eucharist as a needy, undeserving stranger who was fed without having to prove anything. So at the pantry, we gave groceries away without demanding ID or proof of income. On Sundays, little kids and unbaptized doubters and saintly church ladies sang and prayed aloud and passed the chalices. There wasn't one set of people who were performers and one who were spectators. And so at the pantry, I walked up to people on the line and asked them to help with organizing, with giving out groceries. There wasn't one set of people who were clients and one who were professionalized volunteers. And of course, you can do it differently. For example, if on Sundays, only ordained people can touch the communion wafers, or only baptized people can receive them. If church programs are staffed by old timers who cling to control and don't let newcomers in, 
if there are a lot of rules about who deserves communion or who is allowed to participate in the service, if church is basically something done by resentful, burned-out clergy experts for other people, then guess what? That's what your service looks like, too. You make people fill out forms to register. You set up rules about who's allowed to volunteer, who's allowed to receive food. You complain about overwork and compassion fatigue because you're basically doing the work for other people, not with them. And in this, you will be modeling your worship and your service on the values of what St. Paul calls rather bitterly the world. It is a business model, a model of exchange, and an idolatrous attempt to disembody the living body of Christ. Because as I understand it, the scandal of the incarnation is that the temple has been pulled down and holiness now lives very inconveniently in human flesh. And this good news remains folly and a scandal to almost all of us who count ourselves believers. Why else would we still spend so much time obsessing about the temple of stone, how to build it up and decorate it and correctly conduct its rituals? Why else would we be embarrassed by the tone-deaf infant or gay human beings who mess up the perfection of our preserved in amber services? Why would we abstract even the bread we use in our worship until it looks as little as possible like something a human being could actually eat? And why in our liturgies of outreach and service would we shrink from actual relationship, from touch, from lamentation, from tears and embrace, and instead talk about the other human beings we serve as clients instead of bodies and souls. But the scandal of the incarnation abides with us. About six years ago, after the first time I celebrated an Ash Wednesday outdoors among crowds on the streets of my city, I drove back up the hill to my church in the twilight and I slipped in and I took a seat among the 20 or so parishioners gathered in that beautiful building to pray with the candles flickering and all I could think was this place is so small. Well church, even St. Paul's, is small. It's so much more cowardly and less imaginative than it has to be. It's so mindlessly stubborn about its own correctness. It's so proud of its own power. It's so petty and judgmental and unkind to those who disagree. But these failures of the institution, I begin to see, are precisely my own. And my personal sins, my nostalgia, my desire to stay indoors, to refuse new experience, to ignore demanding neighbors, to hide from the incarnation in the habitual. These sins are very ordinary. They belong to all of us 
and to the church. But the good news is that the temple will always be too small to hold God. And so the rowdy, heterodox church of God's entire bickering body is set loose in the creation God made to praise him, set loose in the incarnate flesh of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, set loose in our human bodies because God has left the building. Put my glass of water over here, sir. Uh, hi. Uh, this is definitely the fanciest place I have ever been asked to speak. I actually didn't even know it was St. Paul's Cathedral. It was on my itinerary. I thought it was, I knew it was like a church called St. Paul. I thought it was like St. Paul's Methodist Church or something like that. And then it was a few weeks ago. I was like, oh, good Lord, it's St. Paul's Cathedral. It just feels so inappropriate. <laughs> uh, <laughs> just wait until I'm done talking and you'll be like, yeah, that was inappropriate. <clears throat> so I want to tell you about um, a little bit about myself and how I ended up being, of all things, a Lutheran pastor. I was raised in a fundamentalist church. A fundamentalist Christian. And in the church of my childhood, it was taught that the age of accountability was somewhere around 12. To hit the age of accountability was to spiritually go off your parents' insurance. At age 12, the clock starts ticking, spiritually speaking. You know right from wrong now, and because of this, you are accountable for every time you screw up. If you sin knowing right from wrong and then die before you choose to be baptized, you will burn in hell for eternity. This is when kids start choosing to be baptized, as you can imagine. And the lag time between entering the age of accountability and having your slate wiped clean through baptism can be terrifying. Many of us would pray not to die in a car crash before we were baptized, like other people pray to not get sick before their insurance kicks in. 12-year-old Church of Christ kids experience a wave of devotion like a great spiritual awakening comprised only of sixth graders. And because 12 was the age of accountability, it was also the age when boys could no longer be taught in Sunday school by women. In accordance to Tim with Timothy 2.12, women were not permitted to teach men. Therefore, a 12-year-old boy had more authority than a mature woman. True story. Women were not allowed to serve as elders, preachers, or ushers. For some reason, we didn't have the authority to pass a man the collection plate, but we did have the authority to pass the same man a plate of fried chicken and potato salad an hour later at the church dinner. <laughs> Dale Douglas was the first man I ever had for a Sunday school teacher. He was soft-spoken and funny, and he parted his long, sandy blonde hair so far to the side that it looked like an unnecessary comb-over. Dale started where the woman who taught us the year before, when she still had authority to do so, had left off, testing us to see how many facts 
we knew about the Bible. And I knew a lot of the answers, and so it took just three weeks for him to have a special meeting with my parents, at which he informed them that they would have to do something about me, because I was answering the questions too quickly, and it was keeping the boys in the class from having a chance to answer them. <laughs> to their credit, my parents quietly thought that this was awesome. They did encourage me to allow space for others, but really, they just loved that I knew my Bible and they weren't about to shame me for it. By the time I left the church, I questioned everything I'd ever been told. I was 16 years old when I left that church. It was just not a good place for a smart and smart-mouthed girl to hang out. But I never actually managed to be an atheist. Um, I never stopped believing in God, but I like to say that I did have to go hang out with his aunt for a while. Um, she's called the goddess. My first experience with goddess worship with Wicca was in the mountains west of Denver, and it was on this brown grassy hill um, above uh, a yurt. It was a round nomadic looking structure inside of which all the lamps were covered with red scarves, which made the interior look like an outdoorsy bordello. <laughs> I was about 20 years old when my friend Rena, who's as straight as they come, asked if I wanted to go to a lesbian wedding, and I replied, more than anything in the world. <laughs> so we drove like 45 minutes uh, up into the mountains listening to the Indigo Girls to get in the right woman-y groove. And I held a huge bowl of strawberries on my lap because apparently lesbian weddings are often potluck. I didn't know that. Rena said, uh, this is a Wiccan wedding, and I didn't entirely know what that meant, but it sounded not Christian like me, and I suspected my parents wouldn't approve, and that there would likely be hummus involved, so I was fine with it. <laughs> there was something safe about being around these women. They let me hang out with God's aunt for a while, and I couldn't help but think she liked me in a way the God I was taught to fear never seemed to. I spent a few years with these women and we marked the seasons and we shared our lives and always there were potlucks. We talked about relationships and pregnancies that didn't last and bosses and roommates that didn't appreciate us and how much garlic to add to vegan salad dressing. At one month's potluck, every one of us brought dessert and no one thought that was a problem. But the thing is, there was no doctrine. We never talked about belief. We just shared our lives and spoke of the divine feminine in ourselves and in the world. And the goddess we spoke of never felt like a substitute for God, but simply another aspect of the divine, like God's aunt or something. And when I tell other Christians of my time with the goddess, I think they expect me to characterize it as a period in my life when I was misguided, and that now, thankfully, I've come back to both Jesus and my senses. But it's not like that. I can't imagine that the God of the universe is limited to our ideas about God. I can't imagine that God doesn't reveal God's self in countless ways outside the symbol system of Christianity. And in a way, I need a God who is bigger and more nimble and mysterious than what I could understand or contrive for myself. Otherwise, it can feel like I'm just worshiping nothing more than my ability to understand the divine, and that's different. 
In fact, I felt guided by God the whole time I sojourned outside of the church. It's like the divine source of my life and identity knew that I needed to bask in a female face of God for a good long while outside the church before I could ever come back to the church as anything like whole. And if feminist scholar Mary Daly was right that if God is male, then male is God, then there was a lot of undoing inside of me that had to get done. After a childhood of being told that God is male, but I am not, but sixth grade Jimmy over there is. Much later, in my mid-30s, after my friend PJ committed suicide, was when I realized that what I really wanted more than anything in the whole world, or what I really felt called to more than I'd ever felt called to something else in my life, was to be a pastor to my people, preferably young, urban smartasses, who wanted something more than the categories of late-stage capitalism to tell them who they were. And I had, through the right combination of time, sobriety, and therapy, ceased being angry about the fundamentalism of my childhood. But there was one problem with me being a pastor, and that is that I'm just a really bad candidate to be a pastor. I swear like a truck driver, and I'm covered in tattoos, and I'm kind of selfish, like nothing about me says clergy, <laughs> except for maybe the selfish part. So, so I was really scared about it. I was scared about the fact that in order for me to be the kind of pastor I wanted to be, I'd need to look at some of my own stuff, which I was perfectly happy ignoring. I struggled with the idea of being a spiritual leader. I struggled with knowing I don't really like emotionally needy people, and given the opportunity, I will totally walk the other way if I see them coming. I struggled with being available to people all the time when really I'm slightly misanthropic. I struggled with a lot of things, but what I did not struggle with, despite my upbringing, honestly, was my gender. My calling to be a pastor, while still kind of shocking, and had become less and less ambiguous, and even eventually started to feel precious to me, which is why I did not want to tell my parents. I was experiencing a, a feeling of purpose, really, for the first time in my life, and the last thing I wanted was for them to squash it, and yet they had to know at some point. And so on a Saturday in November of 2005, I sat on my parents' living room sofa, and while they stared at the brand new tattoo of Mary Magdalene that now covered my forearm, I confessed to them that I was not gonna continue in an academic program, I was gonna get a Master of Divinity and seek ordination so I could be a pastor to my people. And I wasn't sure what felt worse about how terrified I was to tell them, the possibility of them shaming me or the fact that in my mid-30s they still could. And at that moment, my father got up and he walked to the bookshelf and he took down his worn, leather-bound Bible, and I thought, here we go, he's gonna beat me with the scripture stick. But he opened it up and read, and I could tell from where he, he turned to, he wasn't gonna read from Timothy, it was something much closer to the middle. 
My father did not read a passage from 1 Timothy. My father read from Esther. From my father, I heard only these words, but you were born for such a day as this. And he closed the book, and my mother joined him in embracing me. They prayed over me, and they gave me a blessing. And some blessings, like the one my conservative Christian parents gave to their soon-to-be Lutheran pastor daughter who had put them through hell, are the kind of blessings that stay with you for the rest of your life that you can't actually speak of again without crying. Where am I at, Mark? Do I have time for the other thing? Or we, do we need to go to questions? Okay, all right. Um, so I, I, I want to read the story about how I became a Lutheran. Um, so at the time, so I met this cute Lutheran seminary student. We met playing volleyball, which I like to describe as like the sacred breeding grounds of tall people. That's where we meet. <laughs> and um, I was trying at this time to be, uni he was a Lutheran seminary student. I was trying to be a Unitarian, which now I think is adorable when I think of that. But um, so <laughs> I moved with him to, to California for like his last year of seminary. And uh, over a bowl of oatmeal, I was lamenting to him about how ununitarian I was when Matthew just said, you should come with me to St. Paul Lutheran on Sunday. It doesn't suck, I promise. Plus, you'll love Pastor Ross, he's gay. <laughs> I relented, but only because the pastor was gay and I hope that meant some flamboyance and dramatics. As Matthew drove us the following Sunday to St. Paul's, I asked him a slew of slightly anxious questions like, well, can I sit on the end of the aisle so that I can escape if I need to? Okay, you're not going to get this joke unless you're an American. Uh, by the time we arrived, I'd calmed down and actually convinced myself that it was going to be just like the culture club meets the 700 club. Okay, so a couple Americans over there. But it was just church, and like at the same time, it wasn't just church. There were no dramatics or drags, sadly, but just a whole lot of people who didn't seem to match each other. Gay, straight, kids, elderly folks in wheelchairs, white, black. The building was old and respectable, which means it was like 30 years old. Uh, <laughs> with red carpeting and dark wood, and I sat on the end of an old pew. I'd never experienced liturgy before, uh, but here the congregation said things together during the service, and they did stuff. They stood, sat, knelt, crossed themselves, and went up to the altar for communion, and it felt like choreographed sacredness. I'd, um, in the car on the way home, I asked Matthew, so if I go back, I mean, I'm not saying I'm going to go back, but like if I go back, uh, so will they do those same things and say those same things again next week? He grinned. Uh, yes, Nadia, that's what we call liturgy. People have been doing those things and saying those things for a couple millennia, so I'm pretty sure next week too. <laughs> it was in those next, those next couple months that I fell in love with liturgy. Um, it felt like a gift that had been caretaken by generations of the faithful and handed to us to live out and caretake and in turn hand off like a stream that had flowed long before us and will continue long after us, a stream that we get to also swim in 
so that we, like those who came before us, can be immersed in language of truth and promise and grace. And something about the liturgy was simultaneously destabilizing and centering. My individualism was being subverted by being joined to other people through God to find who I was. I didn't really know the hymns though, and several of them just seemed misfortunate. Four months later, on the Sunday Matthew and I announced our engagement, I stood during the closing hymn with everyone else, even though I wasn't singing. And as the crucifer passed me, I saw behind him Pastor Ross, who started to grin. And as he approached me, he quickly leaned over bright-eyed and whispered, now Nadia, pastor's wives are expected to sing all the verses of the hymn. And he winked and kept walking. And one Sunday, Pastor Ross announced that he would be teaching an adult confirmation class because it ends up that there were a lot of people that loved St. Paul's but didn't know anything about Lutheranism. He said that there would be information available in the narthex. I leaned over to Matthew and whispered, the narthex? Isn't that a Dr. Seuss character that speaks for the trees? He said, no, it's a lobby, and just because you said that, I think maybe you should go to the class. So soon I was spending my Wednesday nights in church, which I couldn't believe. And on the first week, Pastor Ross wrote grace on the chalkboard in the classroom. Pastor Ross, it ends up, is really old school, no dry erase for him. To this day, the man types all his sermons on a typewriter. He has no computer or cell phone. And when I came to St. Paul's, because I liked the idea their pastor was gay, I had no idea he'd end up being so old fashioned. <laughs> so he pointed to the word grace on the board and he said, everything I'm gonna tell you goes back to this. And I simultaneously doubted and kind of hoped that was true because most of what I'd been taught by Christian clergy was that I was created by God, but was bad because of something some chick did in the garden and that I should try really hard to be good for God, who is totally an angry bastard, so he won't punish me. Grace had really nothing to do with the equation. I hadn't learned about grace from the church, but I did learn about it in a 12-step program. I learned about it from sober drunks who managed to stop drinking by giving their will over to the care of God, and then who tried like hell to live a life according to spiritual principles. I, a lot had happened to me in church basements over my life. I'd had my first kiss. I'd been taught to fear an angry God. I learned to trust a higher power, and now I had my life changed again. And in short, here's what Pastor Ross taught me. This is Lutheranism 101, five points, and I'm done. One, God's grace is a gift that is freely given to us. We don't earn a thing when it comes to God's love. We only try to live in response to the gift. Two, no one's climbing the spiritual ladder. We don't continually improve until we're so spiritual we no longer need God. We die and are made new, but that's different from spiritual self-improvement. Three, we're simultaneously sinner and saint, 100% of both all the time. Four, the Bible is not God. The Bible is simply the cradle that holds Christ. 
Anything in the Bible that doesn't hold up to the gospel of Jesus Christ simply does not have the same authority as the gospel of Jesus Christ. Finally, five, the movement in our relationship to God is always from God to us, always. We can't through our piety or our goodness or our recycling move closer to God. God is always coming near to us, most especially in the Eucharist and in the stranger. Now, write out those bullet points, memorize them, and you could save a lot of money not going to Lutheran seminary. Thank you. <laughs> you might need that. Well, thank you to Sarah and to Nadia. And now it's over to you. Please write your questions down on your programs, lift them up, and our helpful assistants will come and take them from you and feed them up to the table here. Um, just as you're doing that, and please uh, don't feel bashful, uh, get your questions up now. Um, I was just thinking, reading both your books, which I've done very recently, um, the sacraments, I mean, mm -hmm. you say that the spiritual life is also a physical life. The sacraments and liturgy are, are big in the books. Mm -hmm. And at one point, uh, Sarah, you say that you have a terror and awe at the power of the mm -hmm. sacraments. Can you, can you spell this out for us? Because in some ways, some people could say, well, that sounds all a bit churchy. <laughs> uh, explain explain uh -huh. why they're important. Right. Well, um, I actually had... Um, uh, a very nice man, a bishop of the Church of England, told me uh, about three days ago, he said, you're really a sort of supernatural sacramentalist, aren't you? Which um, I think was meant as a compliment. I took it as a compliment in any case. Here's the thing. I think that um, a lot of liberal and progressive Christians think that um, it's a little bit embarrassing to believe that God comes to us in real and concrete ways, in our own bodies and in the bodies of other people, and in signs and in actions. And so we give up doing those things which seem antique and superstitious, um, like kissing and washing and uh, anointing and eating bread and believing that those mean anything more than purely material things. Um, and so we lose the ways in which God is opening God's self to us through every little bit of the created world. And I think that for me, simply doing and practicing a sacramental life um, rather than thinking it through as a set of propositions um, has allowed me to experience what Nadia talks about when she's talking about grace. Mm. But we can make, I mean, we do make problems out of sacraments. I often think, you know, when Jesus, his command to give bread and wine is as equal in the gospel to, to wash each other's feet. And I can just imagine if that had become our Sunday liturgy, oh, that would what be we'd fabulous. be making of it, you know, how hot should the water be? Can women have their feet washed? <laughs> and so on. Do you think we, we're making um, uh, well, of course barriers? We well, of course we make barriers, right? Of course we make barriers. Um, a friend of mine who's a Jesuit priest said to me once very sadly, he said, you know, old men in Rome would ration the ocean. Oh. 
Um, but it's certainly not simply the Roman church that tries to ration the ocean. And the fact is that the, this, the presence of God in all the stuff of creation um, doesn't slow down because we put boundaries around it. That presence is always there. Okay. Nadia, sacraments, what, what are they to you? Oh, I'm for them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right. Presumably you Next got through question. seminary then. <laughs> um, the, the table, and most specifically an open table, is at the literal and metaphoric center of my church's life together. Mm -hmm. And so um, it, somebody said, what do you... What, do, what unites everyone in your church? And I thought, oh my gosh, I don't even, I mean, there's so many different types of people there that don't match. And so finally I said, the belief in, in the practice of an open table and what that means that God welcomes all and so all are welcome at the table. So um, it's, it, there are so many ways, there was this, there was this girl who, um, she was raised in a tradition that did not have an open table, it had a very, very closed table. And she left that church for a while. She came to House for All Sinners and Saints. First time she'd come to church in a while. And she spent a year with us in this deeply sacramental community with an open table. And she flew home to spend some time with her parents. And um, she called me on Sunday morning. We, we meet Sunday nights. And my people generally aren't up on Sunday mornings. And so she called me and said, um, she was crying. And I said, honey, just take a minute, take a breath. What's going on? She said, I met my parents' church and they're doing communion and I can't take it. Like she was devastated by that after a year of being with us. And so I talked to her for a while and later that day I texted and said, can I share what you had talked about with some people at church? So I was telling him of them about what happened to Rachel and without skipping a beat, Stuart said, well, we'll have to take her communion to the airport when she gets home then. So at nine o'clock at night on a Wednesday, 10 people showed up to Denver International Airport with a sign that said, Rachel Pater, child of God, like a chauffeur sign. Mm. And we took our sister what she had been denied um, at her parents' church. Mm. So it's, um, it's, a pretty, uh, it's a pretty big deal to us, I would say. <laughs> Your questions are coming in. Please um, continue to uh, lift up your question sheets. But there's a, a question just come in that, that fits in with what you've just said. What should we do to make sure we have a gift like liturgy to pass on to children? How can we? Actually, Sarah should touch. Sarah, yeah. you Well, um, don't keep the kids out of church, right? I mean, one of the more amazing things that I saw at St. Gregory's was... Um, you know, we take communion standing together around the table, and the priest is standing up there with his hands in the around's position and chanting the prayer, and the people are all gathered, really sort of like a mob around the church. And uh, one day, this girl who was then about nine sort of scooted her body up in between the priest and the table, put her hands up, and began mouthing all the words along. She'd been paying attention when everybody thought she wasn't paying attention. Um, if you don't, if you keep your kids away from church, they won't actually know what it is. I think it's sometimes really difficult um, to believe that um, kids are going to be able to understand what's happening. But the fact is, none of us understand what's happening. 
Mm. We just need to be there. Yeah. Uh, a question's just come in as you're speaking for you. You talk in Jesus Freak about Jesus being iconoclastic about the family. Is there any rules to what form family takes? Yeah, um, I think kind of the craziest thing that um, Jesus says, I always think this is one of those proof texts about um, gay marriage, so see if you can follow me here. Um, when Jesus, not the part about I've come to bring a sword and smash up your family, which is also there and is very appealing. Um, <laughs> But I think at that dreadful moment, right, where he looks down at these shattered people around him and he says, woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. And he gives us to each other. He doesn't give us to each other based on our tribe. He doesn't give us to each other based on the law. He doesn't give us to each other based on blood. He gives us to each other based on his love. And that never stops. What does family mean to a Christian? <laughs> I don't know. I've never thought about that. Mm. It's not, I guess that's not something I think about much. Mm. Um, I, 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 I usually shudder when people want there to be like, what is a Christian this or a Christian that? Mm. Um, because uh, when Christians used... Um, as an adjective, adjective. <laughs> it makes me a little twitchy. Is that Christian music? You know, is that a Christian book? I just, especially in America, Christian culture is, um, it, most, of, most of Christian culture I want nothing to do with. And so used as an adjective, I usually sort of uh, repel from it. But um, a Christian family, I don't know that, a, I think the family is more of a civic institution in a sense, and that um, in a Christian sense, family really can look like absolutely anything. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't see, I've seen every, it fashions itself in endless variety. And so I don't think that it's something that we have to draw boundaries around about it has to look this way or that. Mm -hmm. um, it looks the ways it looks, <laughs> which are, right? Yeah. Which are multiple. Indeed. Okay, more questions have come in. Uh, let's get on with them. Do you believe Jesus is one way or the only way to an authentic and transformative relationship with God? Who wants to go first? Oh, uh, I'll go. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm what I, I guess I like to call a Christocentric universalist in the fact that I really believe that what God was accomplishing in Christ and especially in the cross uh, was accomplished for the restoration, the redemption the renewal of all creation, all people, all things. I believe that very strongly. Mm. How God chooses to accomplish that through symbol systems outside of Christianity, I don't know. I suspect God's clever enough to do that. Um, but I'm, but I'm, I couldn't be Buddhist to save my life. Like, I'm just hopelessly Western in my thinking. God came and got me, knocked me on my ass through this symbol system, right? This is what I understand. I think it's terribly pompous to think because this is what uh, my experience has been and this is what I understand, therefore it is the only truth. I can't imagine that. I think that God's nature is to redeem all, everyone in all of creation and God accomplishes that in ways I'll never understand. Mm -hmm. Sarah, you agree? I agree. <laughs> okay. I think all means all. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Um, 
To what extent, says somebody, if at all, is gender a factor in your experience of church leadership? This is, a, uh, of course, um, a theme that the Church of England, mm. which I'm part of, uh, has been uh, thinking through of late, uh, rather. Really? <laughs> really? With the engine oh. of a lawnmower and the brakes of a juggernaut. Um, but what extent... What extent is gender a factor in your experience of church leadership? Um, in my own personal experience, it's almost entirely beside the point. Yeah. Almost entirely beside the point. And, and you've been over here for a little while. Do you, do you detect that's different in your context from here in the UK? I, I, I don't actually know. I mean, I think... Um, you know, I think there's a wonderful uh, tattoo, which you might be able to look at later on Nadia's arm, of um, Mary Magdalene coming to the apostles to proclaim the resurrection, and they're all busy with their noses in a book. They're like looking at the scroll, so they can't really pay attention to what she's saying because they're too busy being right. So I don't think it's exactly a problem only of the Church of England. I think it has historical precedent, let's say. Yeah. Gender. <clears throat> yeah, I dread, I dread questions of gender um, for, for a few reasons. One, yeah, definitely you heard in, my, in the thing I, I read that it was a huge part of my upbringing. Um, but in my, since I've been out of that, it hasn't been as big of an issue for me personally. So I, um, I don't feel like I, it's an issue that I can speak on that much. Other women have had very different experiences than I have. And so to be a sort of, uh, to be a voice piece for an issue that other people have experienced so much more than me feels inauthentic. Like part of it's like I'm a man-sized woman and so like I haven't really been treated like a little girl much in my life. Like people don't, aren't generally patronizing to me. But a lot of my colleagues who are women have been patronized over and over. And so while like I long to live in a sort of post-gender world where it's like literally like she said, not an issue. I recognize that we don't yet. And the thing that is different, there are women in, in historically male professions, right? There are women who are lawyers now, there are women who are doctors, and there's women who are priests. But the difference, and like I don't know what the deal is in your country, but like in the States, um, the difference is that there are not there are not hospitals all over the United States where you can't practice medicine if you're a woman. There aren't courtrooms all over the states where you can't practice law if you're a woman. But oh my gosh, are there churches all over the United States where you cannot preach if you're a woman. So while I long to never be asked that question again, because it's just frankly one I don't find interesting, then uh, I recognize we don't live in that world yet. Um, and for me, it's, um, I don't know, it's like people say, well, what's it like being a, a woman pastor? And it like takes me a second, I'm like, well, I guess I'm a woman pastor. I just <laughs> never think about that. So. Yeah. Lots of questions coming in. I want to get yeah. through them. Um, so answer quickly. I will, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm going to ask them quickly. Both of you uh, are conscious, I think, of how the church is perceived by people outside the church and how people are bruised by what they've learned in early days, maybe. Um, and there's a question here. How do you help young people eradicate the hellfire story 
and heal them from this fear, which is so scary and totally believable. I don't really have a lot to say about that. Okay, you, you spoke a I think bit you just this. have to put Jesus in their ears and in their mouth over and over and over and over again. I mean, that uh, there is a very clear message of who God is and how God operates in this whole word of grace in my church, and eventually some of that crap starts unraveling in people. So, um, but it but it has to be uh, like a habitual reprogramming because that st that embedded theology runs deep in us. Um, but I think being in an ecclesial community where you are given a different message over and over and over and you receive the Eucharist over and over really, I've seen that matter. It mattered to me and it matters to the people in my church. I would say that might be the largest population in my community or sort of walking wounded ex-evangelicals. Mm. We have a lot more of them than we have Lutherans for sure. Mm -hmm. And there are questions here about the use and abuse of the Bible. Uh, you draw on the Bible a lot in your works, right. but particularly in the States. I mean, right. the Bible is read in a, in a very literalistic right. way. How do you help people out of the, what you might call the curse of literalism in, into, a, into a wider, more expansive, elusive, playful reading of Scripture? Right. I mean, I think one of, one of the things is that, um, I mean, and again, I'm not, I'm not from that background. I didn't go mm. to any church mm. at all. So I've, um, I had the privilege of coming to Scripture um, with complete ignorance. Right, so I didn't actually experience it in that way, and it, I didn't experience being uh, shamed or told about hell or sort of have these literalist readings of it. So I was able to read it, and I was, you know, when I began to read scripture to my complete horror and shock, not just shock that I was actually reading this stuff, um, uh, one of my priests told me something really interesting. She said, well, the Bible is not the word of God. The word of God is what's heard when the Bible is read by the people of God together. Mm -hmm. right? And so that sense that what we're doing with the Bible is reading it together and understanding it together and then reflecting on it together in a way so that we can go not only um, to look up particular verses, but to begin to do a process of midrash on our own lives mm -hmm. and on our own actions and our own community and to pull that back into those stories mm. so that it's not simply a text, it's alive. Yeah, but Nadia, yeah, you, I, you did inherit the, the I, Bible. Yeah, I did, and um, I mean, what, what Sarah's describing is when it becomes a living word. Mm. And Lutherans um, have this thing about that term, the word of God, and if we talk about the word of God, we mean three things mm -hmm. very much in this order, actually. One, the word of God is the word made flesh. It is the incarnation in Jesus Christ. That's the word of God. That's, that's God's greatest message to humanity about God's nature and who God is. That is the word. Okay. Secondly, it's whenever the good news about that is proclaimed among a people. When, it, when scripture is read, when hymns are sung, when preaching is heard, the good news of Jesus Christ proclaimed is the word of God. Thirdly, it's the way that's, that is uh, brought to us in the scriptures. Mm -hmm. 
So if we say that the scriptures are the ultimate word of God and not Jesus Christ, technically, sorry, it's actually idolatry. So um, the Bible's not God. The Bible's not the fourth person of the Trinity. Um, it's functionally, you know, it's great that Protestants got rid of the Pope and then they gave us a paper Pope, as Phyllis Tickle said, right? So now, now it's the tyranny of this text. And, um, and so, but that living word is when it is, it's an endless reservoir of meaning, right? Scripture, uh, Lutherans are much more interested in what the Bible does than what the Bible is. So the conversations about, is it this? Is it infallible? Is it that? We're less interested. We love we loved talking about what the Bible does. Now, it actually does something that no, nothing else does, meaning it convicts us and it frees us, right? There are ways in which a text will convict something in me. What you think all of those stories about what b total buffoons the disciples are, are, are like there for entertainment? No, they're to convict us. They're to go, oh my God, that's us. I'm also an idiot, right? Like I'm also a Christ, I'm also a Christ denier. I'm also, you know, the ways in which we can stand in in these texts and that the, the, the elements of our life and our world can be seen in interpreting the text and the text interpreting us. That's a living word. Okay. I'm always... Um affected by those words of St. John Chrysostom, who said, don't focus on one little word and one little phrase. Always keep reading the love between the lines. Ah, that's totally. beautiful. Reading yeah, that's the love correct. between the lines. That's right. Some questions coming in here about, um, let's be real about the church. If going to church has become so unlike the churches and experience you describe, do I give up going or do I stay and change from within? And how can I stop being apologetic about being a Christian in front of friends when some beliefs seem medieval? Well, British people apologize about everything in front of their friends. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. It's yes. just a long list of things to apologize about, apparently. <laughs> but, you know, this is, this is a bit of a problem, isn't it? Um, we'd all go to churches that you go to. Uh, we might be all on the plane later this week, but there's going to be a lot of people who turn up Sunday by Sunday and can't quite admit the letdown. You know, I think um, one of the mistakes that um, people make when they look at uh, St. Gregory's or they look at uh, House for All Sinners and Saints is they think we're just so incredibly cool and experimental and daring, and we're actually kind of regular churches. Um, we're actually quite traditional in our theology. And we're actually full of ordinary people who are just as annoying as the people in your own churches. Yes, yes. Um, yes. We do not have a better class of Christians or of clergy in our churches. I think what keeps me going to St. Gregory's is that we mean it, right? And that is something that everybody has access to. Again, it's not about um, liturgical style. Like you can worship and mean it in this place. You can worship and mean it in a, in a small wooden room that's eight feet by 12 feet. You can worship and mean it in a jail cell. You can worship and mean it in a beautiful Byzantine building like St. Gregory's. Um, it's the willingness to be in church with people you didn't choose and to allow yourself to be made new that means anything. Mm -hmm. 
It's a hard question because honestly, I almost never visit churches that I would voluntarily go to. I mean, I don't. I had to start one that I would want to go to, and that was what I did. And so, um, so I can't be glib about, you know, go, you should keep going. I, some people are called to stay places and change them, and some people are called to go and start something new. So I can't, I can't presume to say which somebody should do. But if you start something new, my biggest suggestion is don't ask permission. Don't wait for permission. If you, if you want something, if you have a hunger for, for something, I guarantee you, you are not the only person in your area who has that hunger. And it honestly is as simple as getting the other weirdos together who want to do this thing and just break bread together, eat meals together, and pray together and check in and tell the truth about yourself and your life and your stuff. And do that in the context of this sacred story that we have. That's simple. You don't even have to go to seminary for that. Plus, I just gave you the only things you need to know. There's like five points. You're done, right? <laughs> so, um, like, y you can even stay in your ecclesial community and have people over uh, to break bread and to pray and to check in with each other. So um, I've been encouraging people to do that because everywhere I go, people are like, I wish I lived in Denver or I wish you'd start a church in my town. I'm like, you start a church in your town. I'm busy, you know? So, <laughs> so you, you find the other weirdos, man, and, and invite them over for dinner. <laughs> it's what Jesus did. <laughs> Let's be honest. <laughs> I mean, reading both of you, what I, what I love is that I never feel as if you're throwing out the tradition. Uh, mm. I feel that you're hoeing and you're pulling up to the top. That means something different, I think, in the States, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> what does it mean? <laughs> oh, dear. I always manage What's to do that. Flesh? I feel as if you've got a fork in your hand, uh, <laughs> overturning the soil. <laughs> that's lovely metaphor. So that the, the forgotten soil that's been out of view for a bit has come up to the top yeah, uh, and there's yeah, a freshness. Yeah, yeah. So I, yeah. I never feel you're rubbishing the past at all. Yeah. But I also feel that you're trying to reimagine the Christian vision. And I think we're all desperate for help. And there are some mm. questions coming in. Mm. The food pantry, which mm. you might want to tell us a bit more mm. about, is an expression of the scandalous, abundant love of God. How else mm. can churches express that at the moment? Oh, that's really interesting. Well, I mean, how can you not? How can you stop from expressing it? I mean, it's sort of what's keeping you from doing that, right? Mm. It's all there. It's like, you know, we don't have some fancy system with the food pantry. We buy a lot of food, we put it around the altar, and we give it away, and we feed each other. Yeah. That's kind of it, you know? We've been, uh, in the fall, it will be 15 years that we've been going. Um, in that time, I think we've had seven meetings. Um, you buy a lot of food, and you give it away to the wrong people. <laughs> That's sort of basically the secret. Um, and yeah, I'm, I, I think we are traditionalists in a way. I think what the big project for people who care about where the church is going is to really try to discern the difference between tradition and nostalgia, right? Because tradition 
is rich, it's endless, it's a field full of treasure, right? And there are these precious treasures in there, which I think maybe people like me who come from outside can appreciate yeah. in a way, um, that those of you who have been able to treat it as a habit, you get used to it. But it's not a habit, it's a, it's a field full of treasure. Nostalgia, however, is just the idolatrous belief that the reason we have to do this is because we did it this way before, mm -hmm. right? And that is basically antithetical to the gospel, which is not about stasis and is not about death. It's about change and it's about new life. Yeah. Practical expressions of the abundant love of God. Yeah, so, um, yeah, we're, we're also very traditional. I'd say our liturgy is more <laughs> traditional than most Lutheran churches um, in certain ways. Uh, the Triduum is the big highlight of the year. Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and the Easter Vigil. The Easter Vigil's insane at our church. And uh, it's like three hours, and then we end with a dance party. But I mean, we're like, we're, I mean, somebody chants the whole gospel reading. They chant the, uh, what's the thing called? The Easter... Uh, Troparium. No, it's like this other thing. It's really long, and it, and it, and it praises God for the bees. Oh, yes, the, oh, the exalted. exalted. The exalted. Yeah, someone sings the whole exalted and uh, like super traditional, right? But then, um, but then the tellings that the readings aren't like, you know, blowing, you know, you kind of blow the dust off this big book and some guy uh, reading from Exodus. You know, the readings are like performances. It's the only time anything's performancey in our church because we don't have an organ, a band, nothing like that. And so then there are these cr incredibly creative tellings of these stories that, the, that people sign up for a, in a way in advance. It's like a competition. People sign up like months in advance. They'll send me secret emails. Could I have the Ezekiel reading this year? <laughs> you know? So, so it's not traditional, but it's in the context of tradition. We don't take ourselves too seriously is really important. We try and tell the truth as much as possible. And like when the Easter vigil's over after this huge three-day binge of church, which is glorious, we have a dance party. Like it's the natural, it's the most natural thing to have a dance party. And like now this might not work in your parish, but like we feel like nothing says he is risen quite like a chocolate fountain in the baptismal font. So, um, <laughs> so like, we're not so, we're not, we're, we don't, we're not scared and we're not precious about things. And like, we love the sacraments and we love Easter. And so that's a joyful reflection. But in other churches, I imagine people would be horrified and would allow it. So I think I have this thing, like you have to be deeply rooted in tradition in order to innovate with integrity. So um, I think that combination is important and, and a, fun is important. And a question as you're coming through as, as you speak on that, how can a church shaped by liturgy also value chaos? Oh, chaos is the best. Chaos. I mean, that's what God created the world out of, right? I mean, it's, and then we're like terrified of it. We want everything to be so controlled and everything has to be exact and controlled. And he, like for here, like on Sundays, we have all these jobs in the liturgy, but, um, but people get to decide if they want to do them or not. So they come in and there's a basket of booklets, but then there's a bunch that say call to worship and uh, confession, first reading, gospel reading, communion server, assisting minister at communion, benediction, post-communion prayer, collect, right? Those are all up for grabs. So you can come in and having never been there, you could never even been to a Christian liturgy before and read the gospel. 
We don't care. We, we, you don't have to go through a reader training. Nobody has to decide you're good at it. We're like anti-excellence pro-participation. And so the thing that you give up is control and predictability. Like you, if you're willing to give up control and predictability, beautiful things happen. Like with us at Lent, we had this very large transgender woman come, very big, not really very transitioned yet, and um, came in first time, someone said, do you want to do a job? And she said, well, I like reading. She still had this very deep man's voice. And they said, well, would you like to read the gospel? And she was like, really? And they said, yeah. Now it's Lent, so the gospel's like 40 minutes long, right? <laughs> They're like so long. And so she, having never been there, read the gospel at Lent and read it gorgeously. I mean, everybody turned around and was like, who is reading that? And then they see this transgender woman, right, with this very deep voice. And like, she, she read it so beautifully that I felt like I had never heard that text before. And so that's a huge gift, having strangers preach the gospel in a reading of it that maybe other churches would have a hard time even welcoming. So you, you give up predictability and control, but you get someone like Megan just nailing this reading during Lent, you know? St. Gregory's chaotic. Um, we actually have a, a for, for normal Sunday Eucharist, we have a 52-page script, um, but we have it so that we can forget it. <laughs> okay. Right. Um, and I don't think, in fact, again, the point for us is not to do things right, but to do them well, right? Mm -hmm. But it is a little chaotic. I mean, communion is a hot mess at your church. <laughs> it's kind of a, it's kind I mean, everyone's of just like gathered around, they're right. just passing stuff. I mean, I think right. people might see that as like chaotic, but it's like beautiful. Right. Well, I think, I mean, part of it is that there's a way to be reverent without being stuffy. And it comes yes. back to, do you actually mean this? Yes. And if you mean it, you think it actually doesn't matter if a baby cries in the middle of the Eucharistic prayer because um, the table isn't going to break, right? Mm -hmm. And you just change the words. You go angels and archangels, cherubim, babies, seraphim. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. you just, exactly. Then you just change the words. <laughs> right. Um, the church, uh, which we're talking about a lot this evening, but the church is, um, speaks a lot about truth, uh, but finds honesty a bit more difficult, right. it seems to me. Right. And, and one of the things that I feel people relieve, uh, they feel relief when they hear you because there's a lot of honesty uh, going on. Um, I noted in your book, a very interesting uh, thing you picked up about John's gospel, where Jesus uh, teaches that the, the opposite of evil is not goodness, but truth. Mm -hmm. could, you, could you tell mm -hmm. it? I mean, you are being truthful. You are going around yeah. telling the stories of your lives, and that takes a lot of energy, actually. You know, tell here, us about truth. Here's the thing. If, if I were going to say what I think, when God is giving us commandments um, throughout Scripture, really the most repeated one that just keeps getting hammered into us over and over is, don't be afraid. Mm -hmm. Don't be afraid, right? It, we just hear it over and over again. He's like screaming at Moses and saying, don't be afraid while I'm thundering at you. He's, 
is coming to Mary and saying, don't be afraid, over and over and over again, don't be afraid. Um, it's sort of like that moment where, this is what I mean about taking this stuff seriously. Like, I take it seriously that God tells me not to be afraid, yeah. right? And I take it seriously when Jesus turns to his disciples, who as Nadia says, and we all know, are, you know, kind of clueless, right? And kind of um, deceitful and kind of betrayers. And he turns to them and he says, well, I'm going to give you the power to heal the sick and cast out demons and raise the dead, and I'm going to breathe this power on you. And then I think, you need per more permission than that? You need permission from a committee? You've been breathed on and given the power of the Holy Spirit. What are you waiting for? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I... Um uh, I was, my dad was tell, talking to me about why, um, about why I'm able to do what I do. And he says, well, you just, you have something special. I said, no, I think I have something missing. <laughs> like, I, think, <laughs> I, think that, I think it's called shame. <laughs> um, but here's the thing. I, um, and I do believe this. Uh, I really believe that my God is crazy about me. And so um, I actually don't need to feel shame about the fact that I'm also a complete fuck up, right? <laughs> like I, it, I don't, it doesn't bother me to, to admit inelegant things about myself because I hope that it points to the power of God's grace and, and, and love, right? Like somehow, like while, when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When, when we were still ignorant, Christ died for us. When we were still dishonest about our motives, Christ died, right? I mean, I just, I don't, um, it, it, I'm not afraid, I think because of those reasons, to tell the truth about myself, because I believe in absolution, I believe in forgiveness, I believe in the power of, of all of that. I've, I see it, and I've lived it. When, when I'm done talking, people generally say one of two things to me. It's never like, I was stunned by your searing intellect. It was like, it's usually, thanks for your honesty and your authenticity is so uh, refreshing. So basically, they're like, thanks for not lying to us or pretending to be someone else. That's how high the bar is in the church right now. <laughs> People, that's <laughs> like remarkable. Oh. There's, a, there's a lovely line in uh, Marilyn Robinson's book, Gilead, mm -hmm. where she says, nothing true can ever be said about God from a defensive posture. Oh, it's lovely, yeah. And of course, for the defensive posture to disappear, yeah. fear must go. Right. So um, I've, I've always found it a very moving That's and lovely. challenging yeah. uh, insight. Uh, one or two questions more before we have to sadly bring the evening to a close. But... Um, is the church too obsessed with its own image or in a media-saturated world not obsessed enough? How are we doing with our um, media image? Sarah. <laughs> you know, I live in a place that is um, one of the least church-going places in the United States, mm. right? It's like the fifth least church-going or any religion actually practicing place in the United States. Um, and 
I suppose if you were being a public relations person, what you'd try to do is go to the biggest churches and get them to put out press releases about all the good works they were doing and how cool and attractive the people who went were. Um, but I actually kind of think one of the most powerful things is because nobody in San Francisco has to go to church socially. Nobody in San Francisco thinks it's remotely cool to go to church. Nobody in San Francisco thinks it's something that's been marketed to them as the uh, interesting alternative way to spend your Sunday afternoon. The people who go are just going because they're hungry. They're just going because they want something real. Um, and to be able to find something real in a world that's saturated with the media telling you what you should be hungry for is kind of a gift. Mm. Mm -hmm. Nadia. Yeah, I don't know. The whole marketing thing with churches, I, I think we, there are so many ways we've bought into a set of values that we had no business buying into to begin with, and then we judge ourselves according to those values. Um, and so, I don't know, marketing with the church. I, th I think that when churches are trying to be something rather than just being that thing, people can smell that from a mile away. So marketing with churches, I don't know how effective that is. Um, also, the, the reality is that church is, church, church is filled with losers, man. Like, that's who's there. It's not for the beautiful people who have it all together. It's not for the, you know, it's not a place to gain status. I mean, it's where the broken people go, you know, the hungry broken people. And um, like Jesus surrounded himself with people for whom life was hard. So um, I think having shiny PR campaigns for churches feels a little misguided. I think living out the Christian freedom that we have from the gospel of Jesus Christ is a beautiful transformative thing for individuals and, for, and even for cities. And we should by all means uh, just do that. We should just be that. But marketing it, I don't know. It makes me a little twitchy. Resonance more than relevance yeah. in a way. Yeah, yeah, yes. that's right. Yes, yeah. uh, Alan Bennett put his finger on that in one of his plays where he has a vicar saying, uh, call me Dick, because that's the sort of vicar I am. <laughs> <laughs> you said it. That's awesome. <clears throat> Does God really care what we look like or the language we use? Um, not I yet. hope not. <laughs> I don't know. I can't imagine. I think, I think um, I'm going to go out on a theological limb here and go, I think that God is less petty than we are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. That. Um, I've got a question just to finish mm. with. Um, and forgive me, uh, but uh, I'm a member of the Church of England and I, I, we love our issues in the Church mm. of England. I always say an issue, an issue, we all fall down. <laughs> but in the Church of England, our next hot topic is sexuality, homosexuality particularly. Um, have you got any advice, have you got a message for the Church of England before you get back on your planes as we now begin to work out whether LGBT people should be able to marry or be a bishop or golly gosh, do both? Uh, what do you want to say to the Church of England at this juncture about this topic? It is finished. Amen. Martin Luther King, who preached in this cathedral 50 years ago this year, uh, said uh, at one point, segregation is now dead. The only issue left 
is how long will they prolong the funeral? That's right. Is that yeah. what you it's, it's finished. Yeah. It is accomplished. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, I'm afraid time, I've tried to ask as many questions as I can that have come up here. Um, I just want to, on behalf of everybody here, thank you both so much for what you've given. It is exhausting talking about yourselves <laughs> uh, and your stories, uh, but I want you to know that it's hugely helpful to the rest of us. What I love about what you've brought here to this table and under this dome tonight is that you remind us that it's always better to be hurt by the truth than to be comforted by a lie. Uh, I love that. That uh, mm. actually, although as Anglicans, of course, I believe that it's salvation by good taste alone, <laughs> uh, actually, <clears throat> actually it isn't. It's about human lives mm -hmm. and it's about listening, listening to your life, mm -hmm. that, that where the God is whispering. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I always feel, as I read your books, and I hope lots and lots are going to be sold in a minute, uh, that you are inviting us into an escape into reality. Mm. And, and that's no mean achievement mm. as you're talking about God and about Jesus Christ in the present culture. And um, finally, I just want to say, I don't know if you've ever come across a, an English poet called U.A. Fanthorpe. Mm. She, she died not very long mm. ago. But in one of her wonderful poems, she imagines Christ finding it rather difficult to get his message across. And in the end, he looks at his rather hopeless disciples and he says, you know, I'm simply tattooing God on their makeshift lives. <laughs> and I think, particularly as you're sitting next to me, <laughs> I, I feel that's what you're helping us do, to tattoo God onto very makeshift, fragile lives. And on behalf of everybody under this dome tonight, thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>